Good morning. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn them to Romans chapter 1. And as you do, let me just uh, extend a welcome to you if you're a visitor. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Um, I hope that you feel welcome. And um, if, if you are a visitor and you're looking to get um, a little bit more information about us, uh, in, in our, our ministries, and different opportunities to get plugged in and connected with our church, the way that you do that is by texting WELCOME to 816-448-8178. Again, that's WELCOME to 816-448-8178, and we will get you uh, the information you're looking for. And uh, on that note, if you have been visiting uh, Emmaus for a while and you have filled out a form on our, on our main website, EmmausKC.com, uh, for community groups, we think that the link to that particular form was bad. And so uh, if that's the case and you're, you're waiting for a response, it's because we haven't actually received it. So if you've been attending Emmaus for a while and... Um, and your, goodness, um, is there anything I should do? Should I move different right here? Is that okay? All right. Sounds kind of tinny. <laughs> but if you're, if you're interested in, uh, in joining a community group, the easiest and quickest way to do that is to uh, just send us an email at groups at EmmausKC.com. Again, that's groups at EmmausKC.com. That's the easiest way to, um, for, for us to get you connected with a, a community group. We are pretty much at max capacity with most of our existing groups. So we have a couple of brand new groups that are starting in October. And uh, so we will get you squared away that way. Um, I'm going to read this passage from Romans. And then I'll pray and we'll, we'll begin our time together. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all the, those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O Triune God, please prepare our hearts and minds as we encounter your glory this morning. Receive our attention these next few minutes as worship. I pray that you would take our worship and sanctify it for your purposes. As we come now to this book of Romans, we pray with anticipation that this study would shape us in ways we could not dream of. O oh Lord, give us an ever-increasing appreciation for your exquisite gospel. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things by the power of the Spirit in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, every week we approach God's word. We who, who um, come to, to this, not pulpit, but uh, this music stand to, to preach God's word to you, we do so with fear and trembling. And this is because the scriptures are the one triune God's self-disclosure to us, which make them infinitely beyond what we can comprehend in terms of worth and value. Right? We dare not approach this word with half-hearted interest or with a personal agenda. Because too much is at stake here. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And when we pause to think about it, such a stern warning makes absolute sense. It is a dreadful and weighty thing to stand here as God's herald proclaiming, Thus says the Lord, to speak on His behalf. And all of this is true every week, and yet... There are some verses, some passages, some books that feel so grand and lofty and imposing that the demand for reverence in approaching them is involuntary and compulsory, right? We feel like Moses, we just have to take our shoes off as we approach holy ground. Today, we begin a, a series through such a book, and it's for that reason that the many times Considered preaching through Romans in the past, we've decided not to. We frankly didn't feel ready. We still don't, really. And yet, we believe this is where the Lord has us in this season. And so, with butterflies in our stomachs, we we approach Mount Everest, so to speak, to begin our ascent. Now, you may think I'm being a little uh, hyperbolic or dramatic, But let me assure you that we are not the first people to think about the book of Romans in these terms, right? In his 1552 preface to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther wrote this, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament in the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. John Calvin likewise says, With regard to the excellency of this epistle, I know not whether it would be well for me to dwell long on the subject. For I fear, lest through my recommendations falling far short of what they ought to be, I should do nothing but obscure its merits. He's saying, I shouldn't talk this up too much. Not because he can build up too much anticipation, but because he won't do it justice. I'm confident that our study through this book of Romans will prove such lofty claims true. So the book of Romans. The book of Romans is about the exquisite gospel in which... The one righteous God reconciles himself to rebellious sinners in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, by the powerful ministry of the Spirit. That's what's in the content of the book of Romans, 
Or if I could summarize this for you in a neat way. Kids, this is, this is the way for you to remember what is the book of Romans about. So when your parents ask you what is the book of Romans about, you tell them the book of Romans tells us the good news about how Jesus brings us into God's family. The book of Romans tells us the good news about how Jesus brings us into God's family. But what was the occasion of this letter? It's not simply that Paul wanted to, to uh, write a systematic theology, and so he wrote the book of Romans uh, just to, to sort of uh, scratch this itch of, of writing down this full version of the gospel for us. That's not what was happening. Right? Something was happening in Rome that required Paul's attention, and the book of Romans was his response. Paul was not the person who brought the gospel to Rome. Uh, in fact, it was, uh, as far as we can tell, an organic grassroots movement that did not begin directly with any, po- any apostle. Um, it may have even begun uh, with, uh, uh, as a result of Jewish Christians fleeing from persecution in Jerusalem. We don't really know exactly how the gospel took root in Rome. But however the church of Rome was established, by the time Paul wrote this letter, this is the important thing to note about it. The church had a lot of Jewish believers and a lot of Gentile believers. It was, it was a big population of Christians composed of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, which led to ethnic tension and division. And these divisions are the occasion of Paul's letter to Rome. Ethnic superiority and resentment had led to factions, and so Paul wrote Romans in order to unify the divided Jewish and Gentile believers. He wanted them to be unified. Now, this is incredibly interesting and instructive and timely for us today who live in a volatile and complicated society with respect to racism and ethnic division. It's a complicated history with ongoing ramifications, and so we should take note. Now, we might expect, based on the way that we deal with ethnic divisions and racism, we might expect that if Paul is writing to a situation of tension between Jews and Gentiles, we might expect that he would address that issue firstly and primarily and directly, but he doesn't. That's not how he deals with this issue. The way that he unifies the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome is by showing them their commonality in Christ. So the way he does this is first by obliterating any sort of delusion of superiority by condemning all people, Jew and Gentile, apart from Christ. Any sort of delusion that says we are on uh, a more positive footing based off of our ethnicity Paul just obliterates that by condemning Jews and Gentiles in the first two and a half chapters of Rome, Romans. And then he shows them that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level and no one is advantaged or disadvantaged because of ethnicity, right? The empty hands of faith get you into this family and nothing else. In other words, Paul's strategy for bringing Jews and Gentiles together was not to try to analyze their divisions on the superficial level. It was to go to the root of the issue. Instead, the root of the issue, which is man's natural estrangement from God. And so the solution to this problem 
is his reconciliation to God in Christ through faith. So he goes to the root of the issue. Now today's passage is simply Paul's opening statement. It's his greeting. It's his longest and densest greeting in the Bible. So Paul begins all of his epistles this way with a brief greeting and, and, uh, and introduction. But this is the longest and this is the densest. Right? It is a theologically soaked run-on painting the entire book of Romans in miniature. And so in this passage, Paul assures his readers that, that all that they need, all that they need for what he is about to tell them to do, all that they need is available in Christ alone on account of his exquisite gospel. In this gospel, Paul is saying, there is a bottomless reservoir of assurance and comfort and wisdom and resources for unity. This whole passage is narrowing to one fine point, the benediction at the end of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the point of this passage. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the six verses leading up to that blessing is the sturdy groundwork fixed, unshakable foundation upon which this blessing stands. They signal how grace and peace come to us. So, for the next 20 minutes or so, I want to lay this passage bare before you, exposing you to the glories inside, and I pray that you would be convinced of the all-sufficiency of God's love for you in Christ. And in doing so, brothers and sisters, I'm taking it on faith that your greatest need this morning, regardless of what are, whatever else you are burdened with, whatever else you came here burdened with, that your greatest need this morning is to be reminded of God's glory in the gospel and His love for you in Christ. And so I invite you to take that on faith with me. I invite you for these next 20 minutes or so to look away from yourself. Look away from your own needs, your wants, your frustrations, your insecurities. Look away from yourself momentarily and simply consider this exquisite gospel. Consider something far bigger and grander than yourself. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul begins this letter like many others by identifying himself primarily as a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus. He is a man under authority. And he is conscious that the words that he writes here do not derive from his own authority. He's claiming to be a servant of Christ Jesus, which is both a confession of humility and a claim of high honor. Right? As a servant of Christ, he dares not to use his position to advance his own acclaim or puff up his own reputation. That's not what his position is for. He's not calling attention to himself or puffing himself up. And at the same time, this is a position of great honor. right? Because just like as he does not dare to use his position to advance his own name, he also does not dare to refuse to boldly speak the words he has been commissioned with. He goes on to say, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. This is a gracious and effectual calling. God reached down, as it were, 
and grabbed Paul by the scruff of his neck and transferred him from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And there he established him in a specific role. Apostle. Mouthpiece of Christ. God has set him apart for a service. A very particular service. Set apart for the gospel of God. Now what does this phrase, gospel of God, signify? What does it mean that this gospel for which Paul is set apart is God's gospel? Well, several things are implied here. First of all, this is God's gospel because it comes from God. He is the source. God is the gospel source. This good news is a story that he has wrote. So it originates from him. It's the gospel of God because it comes from him. But secondly, the gospel is the gospel of God because it is about God. God is the gospel's content. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is about God. It is the good news about God and his actions. The one true triune God has acted to redeem his creation. And that action is the good news. It is the gospel. It's the action that the undivided will of the Holy Trinity was to reconcile rebellious sinners to himself. And the person of the Father who sends, and the person of the Son who was sent to live and die and rise and ascend, and in the person of the Spirit who was poured out on all of those for whom Christ died. This is His story. God is the content and the source of this gospel. This gospel, which, verse 2 says, He promised beforehand through the prophets and His holy scriptures. There is nothing innovative or reactionary about this gospel. God was not changing his mind when he worked the salvation of his people in the gospel. Right? As if, as if God had one plan in the Old Testament, and then a new plan in the New Testament. That's not what's happening. It is the same God who wrote human history in the Old Testament, and he continues to write not just a similar story, but the same story in the New Testament. It's the same story. You see, the gospel that Paul was set apart to preach is the burning heart of the whole Bible, including the Old Testament. It, it's a story that takes a whole Bible to tell. And this is why, Lord willing, you will never hear a gospelless sermon at this church. We cannot not preach the gospel because we preach the Bible. And to preach the Bible without preaching the, the gospel is to preach the Bible wrongly. We haven't actually preached the Bible if we haven't preached the gospel. This is why it's not a homiletical or rhetorical imposition to preach a, a Christ-adorning sermon series through the prophets, for example, like we just did this past summer. Paul is telling us that the prophets and the scriptures tell a story that doesn't conclude with themselves. It concludes in Christ, right? They make promises that only Christ delivers. Verse 3, this gospel is concerning His Son. This good news of God concerns His Son. Don't miss the significance of those three words, brothers and sisters. Concerning His Son, God's Son. See the divine nature of the Son in these words. Right? This is a statement of ultimate reality. God is Father to His Son. 
Never was there a time that the father was fatherless, but then he would not be a father. Right? He is father to his son, and the son is son of his father eternally. That relationship exists eternally. This good news for which Paul was set apart originates in the loving, undivided, holy, perfect, unchanging will of the Trinity. Right? This eternal God willed for the primary visible actor in this story to be the Son, who, he continues to say, was descended from David according to the flesh. Do you see this mystery? This mystery of mysteries. That this eternal Son of God, one with the Father and Spirit and glory and divine nature, became a man. He's the Son of God. And He descended from David according to the flesh. The Son of God was born according to the Virgin. Leaving none of His divine nature behind. He nevertheless was descended from David according to the flesh. And in this way, the Gospel of God, which was promised in the prophets and in the Scriptures, centers on the mysterious and glorious work of the God-man. And This highlights this crucial doctrine for us that we call the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, which refers to the two distinct natures of Christ. His divine nature and His human nature. United in this one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And these natures don't mix with one another. Right? It's not as if, as if the divine nature is somehow mingled and mixed together now with the human nature. As if God is now somehow subject to human imperfection. Or as if humanity is now, ha- now somehow experiencing the divine attributes. No, these two natures are distinct from one another and they are united in the single person of the Son of God. That is, the eternal Son of God being in the divine nature, added to Himself a human nature. Why does this matter? Why am I I splitting hairs here on this topic? It matters because without the hypostatic union, right? unless this gospel centers on the work of the God-man, the gospel is impossible. Unless the Son is truly divine and truly man, He cannot save humanity. Why? Well, because first of all, salvation is a work that is fit only for God. Only God is fit to save His creatures. He's the only one who's fit for it. And yet, the way that He works this salvation is by reversing the curse of sin, which was brought about by human disobedience. And as we'll see in this book, this book of Romans, Christ saves us both by paying for the guilt of our sin and by giving us His righteousness, imputing to us His righteousness. But the only kind of righteousness that we could receive as humans is a human righteousness. And the only kind of punishment that can atone for human sin is a human sacrifice. And so that's the dilemma we face. Right? The problem that we have is manifestly a human problem, and yet the only solution possible is a God solution. Hence we have the God-man, the Son of God, descended from David according to the flesh. But what about this name David? Why does Paul mention this name David specifically? Well, this is a reference to what Paul just mentioned a moment ago about the promises of the Old Testament. 
for as far back as 2 Samuel 7 and continually throughout, the Old Testament promises that God will deliver His people through the ministry of a messianic king who would descend from the line of David. David would be his ancestor. This offspring of David would sit enthroned in the kingdom that God would establish. And he would reign forever and ever. And so Paul is saying, this king is Christ. The God-man upon whom the gospel of God centers is none other than the promised Messiah, the Davidic king who will deliver his people and reign as sovereign forever and ever. He goes on in verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what does this declared to be the Son of God mean? Well, we know at least what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Christ was somehow adopted or ushered into deity through the resurrection. Right? If that were what Paul was saying, he would be contradicting himself when he attributes eternal sonship to the fundamental identity of Christ. So no, this passage does not teach that Christ became the Son of God in the resurrection. This phrase, declared to be the Son of God, needs to be read in its immediate context, which is the context of his Davidic kingdom. What happened in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, in other words, was not that Jesus became divine, but rather that as the divine Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, Upon his resurrection and ascension, he was exalted and enthroned in his position as the everlasting and reigning offspring of David. You see, nothing new in terms of Christ's divine identity happened in the resurrection, but something new definitely did happen in redemptive history. Something new definitely happened in the story that God was telling. What happened? This is what happened. The anticipated turning point has occurred. And now, in the resurrection and ascension, the Davidic king has been crowned and his rule has begun. He is the Davidic king. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Here again, we see that the calling of being a spokesman for the gospel is a calling of grace. And that this grace comes to us through the person and work of Christ. Did you see that at the beginning of verse 5? Through whom? That's Jesus he's talking about. Through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship. Know this, that no gift of salvation, no gift of salvation the gift of being a spokesman for the gospel of God. No gift of salvation comes to you apart or outside of Jesus Christ. It all comes to us through Jesus Christ. And this calling is a gracious calling. It's a gracious calling for the individual that does not terminate on himself. God did not make Paul an apostle so that he could enjoy apostleship. He called Paul to be an apostle for a very specific purpose, to preach the gospel and to call sinners unto repentance, to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul calls faith in Christ obedience to his calling 
as an apostle. And this is all moving towards this central purpose clause. Why does he set Paul apart for the work of the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith? For the sake of his name among all the nations. For whom is this gospel? For whom does God intend for our preaching to bring about the obedience of faith? Who is this for? Who are we, who are we sent to? The nations. Brothers and sisters, let us not take this point lightly. For the sake of His name, among all the nations, God has an agenda in saving us. He has an agenda to make Himself famous among all tribes and tongues and languages and peoples. He intends for His fame and His glory, His name, to be spread over this globe. And this is no afterthought. Do you realize this, Emmaus? Missions, the call to preach the gospel to the nations, is not a parenthetical emphasis for a few people who really like the idea of traveling. That's not what missions is. Missions is not the hobby horse of a special class of Christians. Missions is at the heart of what God is doing in the gospel. It's central. This is the end. This is the telos. This is the purpose of the whole work. The spread of God's name among the nations. Remember that the good news is no plan B. It was always God's intention. God has always purposed His name to be spread over the face of this planet through the conversion and subsequent worship of unbelieving rebels. And this master plan is exactly what God saved Paul for. For the sake of His name among all the nations. And this is what He saved us for as well. This is the intended end of the Great Commission itself. The spread of God's name among all the nations. Oh Lord, let this Rome stir up more and more workmen and women for the sake of the spread of Your name among the nations. Verse 6, He goes on, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. You Romans, Paul is saying, are a part of what God is doing among all the nations. Emmaus, your belonging to Christ is a part of God making Himself famous among all the nations. Take your eyes off yourself for a moment and see God's work in your salvation as inextricably connected to His mission on the earth. He is making worshipers of Himself from every tribe, and you are included in this number. Verse 7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Don't pass over the statement too quickly, brothers and sisters. To be a Christian is not to be one whom God tolerates. He doesn't put up with you. He loves you. To be a Christian is to be a saint. That's the noun word for holy. To be a Christian is to be holy. A holy one. To be a Christian is therefore to be loved by God. Christian, God loves you. Don't argue with me on this point. Don't argue with the Word of God. Submit to it. You're not being pious by arguing with this point. Submit to it and receive it 
and believe it. God loves you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is on account of all else mentioned in this passage that this grace and peace might come to us from the Father and the Son. And I want you to notice two things about this benediction. First, I want you to notice that the grace and peace, that is peace with God and peace with others by extension, this grace and peace come from a single source. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is their grace and peace. The grace and peace that they share that they're giving to us. It's not the grace and peace of the Father and then another grace and peace from the Son. It is their grace and peace. It is the same grace and peace that comes from both of them, which implies a great deal about Christ's divinity, His equality with the Father. He and the Father are sending us this grace. But I want you to notice, secondly, the inconspicuous ministry of the Spirit in this verse. We should be asking, what is this grace? How does it come to us? This grace that that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This grace and peace that they share. How does it come to us? And when we ask that question, can our answer be sufficient if it doesn't insist on the coming presence of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son eternally? It must. It must include the Spirit. Paul will go on in chapter 5, for example, to say that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not take lightly this benediction to be blessed with the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing other than to be graced with the ministry of the eternal Spirit who sees to it that all of these benefits that we have been speaking of are applied to our hearts. Now that was a lot of stopping and going as we went through this passage. So let me give you my paraphrased version of these seven verses. This is not a translation. This is Pastor Sam's paraphrase. Okay, so don't take it authoritatively, but I think this gets at what Paul is saying with these seven verses. I, Paul, am writing this to you on, not on account of my own authority, but on Christ's. For I am His servant. By the grace of God, He chose me for this office and set me apart to preach the gospel. His gospel. God's good news. The gospel that originates from Him and is about Him. And this gospel is no change of plans for God. The same God who spoke and worked through the prophets in the Scriptures fulfilled all of those promises in this good news. This gospel is about His Son. And it's at the very heart of the Scriptures. This is the good news that the triune God has acted decidedly to redeem. The eternal Son of God added a human nature to Himself. A human nature in the line of David which makes Him the Messianic King who has come to deliver His people. This Son of God, eternally begotten in His divine nature, enfleshed in His human nature, was enthroned as the ruling and reigning King when by the Holy Spirit He was resurrected from the dead and ascended in power. On account of this Gospel, we may know Christ as our Lord. It is through Him that we receive grace. This grace is intended to so motivate us that we preach the good news to all, charging everyone to believe. 
He has commissioned us to make faithful worshipers of Christ among all the nations so that His name might be glorified. And we are included in this great task. We are both the laborers and the fruit of that labor. We belong to Christ. And because we belong to Christ, we are holy. And we are loved by God. By the God of infinite love and grace. So, may the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ come to you through the gracious and peaceful ministry of the Spirit. Where does that leave us? I have two pastoral charges for you this morning. One is to the believer and the unbeliever alike. And it's simply to receive Christ by faith. Receiving Christ by faith is, according to Paul, obedience. That is obedience. Now that word obedience... I recognize, can feel so tiresome sometimes. Especially for the anxious, shame-ridden Christian who is just so sick and tired of trying and failing. But for such a one, I want you to hear the soul-lightening words that obedience to the gospel is faith. How do I obey this gospel? How do I obey this good news? Believe. You believe it. Obedience isn't making yourself somehow fit for it. It is the belief, the reception, the acceptation, the acceptance that Christ for you is enough. The confession that Jesus Christ is your Lord. This shouldn't be surprising to us. We are, after all, talking about the same Jesus who says, Come to me, all labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You believe. Now, God may be calling you to very specific actions, very specific fruit in keeping with repentance, and very specific expressions of faithful obedience. God may be convicting you to to go and apologize to somebody, or reconcile with somebody, or confess Hidden sin. And so my saying obedience to faith is not an escape hatch from that sort of work that the Lord may be doing in your heart. God may be calling you to very specific actions, but you can be absolutely sure that your first and primary and perpetual act of obedience is nothing less or more than faith. Holding fast to the promise that God in Christ loves you. That is your first and primary charge. That is your first act of obedience, Christian. And unbeliever, you who are not a Christian but have come to this place, nonetheless, I'm glad that you're here and the charge for you is the same. Believe this gospel. Believe that your sin constitutes rebellion against your God and that your only hope in reconciliation with Him is the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of His Son. Believe this and come to Christ with the empty hands of faith to receive all that He is for you. And if you're an unbeliever and you have decades, perhaps, years of disobedience, let me assure you that your many years of rebellion and disobedience pose zero hindrance to your ability to obey your Lord. Why? 
Because the obedience that he demands from you is faith. You can do that right now. You don't need to undo many years of rebellion before you can start obeying today. Obedience to this charge is faith. That's the obedience that I call you to this morning, unbeliever. Faith. So come to him and receive him by faith. The second charge is this. Believers, you are charged to call others to receive Christ by faith. Do exactly what I just did. And you are charged to pray for the spread of his name among all the nations. Do you do that? Do you, do you pray for the spread of God's name among the nations? Like Paul, brothers and sisters, our election is a gracious one. God has called us and set us apart to be servants of Christ, just like Paul. And just like Paul, his intention in saving us is not to just leave us saved, but rather to sweep us up into his intention to make his name famous among all the nations. He saved us to commission us to go and be a part of this work. To make the nations glad. This is what your salvation is for, brothers and sisters. To make the nations glad. For us to be a church, for us to be a church that exists to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. That's our mission statement. That's what Pastor Josh unpacked for us these past two weeks. For us to be that kind of church means for us to be a church that exists to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name among all the nations. This is at the very heart of the identity of the people of God. So pray, brothers and sisters, pray for the spread of God's name among all the nations. Pray for those who have been sent out from our midst already. Pray for fruitfulness there. Pray that God would send more laborers out to this ripe harvest that is the nations. And ask the Lord if He might be stirring you to go. Don't simply assume that it's the vocation of someone else. He may intend for you to be a laborer in those white fields. This is our work. This is our work as a people whether we are working from the side of the sent or from the side of the sending. Either way, the business of laboring to see God's name famous among all the nations, to see the nations glad in Him, is our work. Our collective work as a people. As we conclude our time together at this table of communion, like we do every week, I pray that this act of fellowship with Christ and with one another, would feed your soul this morning. In this meal, we look at the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. We look backwards to what He accomplished. In this meal, we look to the present. The present fellowship with Christ and His people. The continual effects of His broken body and shed blood. And in this work, in this meal, we look to the future. We anticipate the great feast in a fully realized kingdom of Christ when all things will be made new. And so I pray this meal would impress upon us the love of God for us in Christ. I pray this meal would impress upon us an urgency 
to see the nations flooding into Christ, to see this table extend, as it were, out to the uttermost regions of the world, to a people who are starving and malnourished and have no access to Christ. We want more people at this table. And I pray that this meal would impress upon the hearts of outsiders, of unbelievers, who are looking in, who are longing to be welcomed into this family and seated at the table of Christ. And on that note, if you're not a Christian this morning, again, I'm glad that you're here. And I would ask that you please do not take this meal. We ask that you refrain from taking this meal not out of spite, and not as some kind of expression of elitism, but simply because this meal isn't for you yet. It's a Christian meal, which means only Christians can enjoy it properly. But we want for you to enjoy it, non-believer. We want for you to come into this family and to come into this family, to come through this door, into this home, to be seated at this table. All you need is your need. There is no admission fee for, of good deeds or a put together life. The economy of God's family is faith. So don't pretend to be a Christian by taking this meal if you're not one. Instead, watch us. And let our fellowship with Christ and with one another stir your desire for Christ. And so the invitation is to come to Him by faith. Any one of us who take this meal would love to tell you about Christ. Let me pray for us and then I'll invite for the, the believers here to come and, and take the elements together. Lord Jesus, as we conclude our time of fellowship with you and your word, we continue now to fellowship with you in this meal. And we ask that you would sanctify us for your purposes. Set us apart for the obedience of faith, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of your name among all the nations. Lord, please use this word from Romans to accomplish what no man could ever achieve. Accomplish many things with it. Build up your church. Convict the wayward. Call in the lost and wandering. And send your laborers out to your fields ripe for harvest. Do this all for your glory and our good. Amen.